My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. We use that every week here at Sedaris. And uh, open up to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, we have some place down at the ends of the rows on, on the floor there. You can at, grab it yourself or ask your neighbor to pass it down. Or if you want to use your phone, you can just look up uh, 1 Peter 3. And, and uh, really anything that Google is going to present you with is going to be great for our purposes today. And if you're looking at your phone, we just assume that... Uh, that you're, you're, you're reading the Bible. That's just how we roll here, okay? So, um, great. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, let me bring you up to speed with what we've been doing in our times of teaching on Sunday. Um, we don't do anything that fancy here at Sedaris. Um, it's our usual practice to just walk through the Bible together. And um, at the beginning of the year, we embarked on this uh, journey through, the, through this letter of Peter. Okay, it's the first letter we have preserved uh, from Peter. So it's sophisticatedly titled, First Peter, okay? And the, the Peter is the author, and uh, this is the Peter who was the disciple of Jesus, okay? So we have stories about Peter and Jesus and, and the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this is one of his letters that he's writing later in life, okay? And uh, this letter he wrote to all the Christians who are in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey in the first century, and, uh, and really what they did, uh, this letter would show up at a church, they'd read it out loud, they'd copy it, and then they'd send it to another church, and then they'd read out loud, copy it, send it to another church. And uh, we've been doing just that for about 2,000 years, okay? And so there's nothing real special or fancy about what we're up to. Today we're doing the same thing that the first century church was doing. We're going to read Peter's letter aloud and hopefully pass it on to others, okay? But the fact that this letter showed up uh, in a small little sect 2,000 years ago, yeah, it, it has been uh, thought to be significant enough to be copied and translated and passed down from generation to generation means that while this may not be something fancy that we're doing, there's something very, very significant in this letter. Very significant in this letter. Something extraordinary is in here. Many things in here. And today we're going to unpack a portion of this letter that, had, that really has a great, nugget, a great nugget of just relevancy for minority Christian populations living in cities like us. And, and that nugget is an answer to this question. It goes like this. How do we represent Jesus in a world that's suspicious of Christians and the Christian faith? How do we represent Jesus and Christianity in a world that is suspicious of Christians and Christian faith? How do we do it? You see, Peter was writing uh, to these Christians in the first century, um, an audience that he uh, titles the elect exiles, uh, one verse, verse one. Chapter 1, verse 1, the elect exiles of Asia Minor. These were Christians in the urban, in the urban centers of the Roman Empire. And this culture was different than ours. It was pre-Christian, okay? Um, and so uh, the people in, in, that were in Asia Minor at that time, they didn't really have categories for what Christians were, okay? They're, they're like, there's this weird sect out of Ju uh, Judaism called the Way. That's what Christianity started as. And people looked on this community and they were like, what is going on over here? We don't know quite how to place these people. They seem to be growing out of Judaism, but they're not worshiping on Saturdays. They're worshiping on Sundays. Uh, that, that's a little bit strange. Um, they, uh, they, they seem to be eating the body and blood of somebody, maybe even their founder. That's a little bit strange. They call each other brothers and sisters, even though they're married. Are these relationships incestuous? That's weird. They even uh, call their founder Lord. That's a title that we only reserve for the emperor. That's a very, they seem to be living a different ethical code than the rest of the world. This is a very strange group of people. Uh, they were suspicious of this budding movement in the world. 
They're wary of them. They're uncertain of what to do with this new little group of people. And, and this disposition is, is very similar to the disposition of the Seattle culture to Christians today. Very similar, isn't it? Um, it isn't that much of a jump to say that your average Seattleite is suspicious of Christians. Um, I'm actually from Denver, Colorado, and I actually learned this when I got to Seattle. In Denver, if you're a Christian, the, the, you're still a minority, but the greater uh, culture looks at you and they say, hey, you're a Christian, that's okay, you do you, I'll do me, and we'll all be fine. But I learned that it's very different here in Seattle when I showed up two and a half years ago, forced me to conclude it's a lot harder to be a Christian in this city. The, the Seattle attitude towards Christians tends to be, hey, what are you up to over there? What are you doing? Are you a racist? Are you a sexist? Are you an oppressor? Are you a homophobe? I have these conversations with a lot of my friends who aren't Christians on the front end. And I found very quickly that being a Christian in Seattle means to be suspected of some of the greatest sins in our society. And so it's fair to say that Seattle outpaces most other progressive city centers in our country in their suspicion of Christians. And so there's this overlap between a pre-Christian and a, pro, a post-Christian world with regards to their the disposition towards what do we do with Christians. It's, it's suspicion. It's one that we're going to call over and over again um, social marginalization. Uh, Peter has in mind slander in this passage, gossip, insults, not necessarily physical persecution. Um, some have speculated that Peter was writing to Christians who were experiencing physical persecution, but it's likely that Peter was actually writing before physical persecution had actually entered into Asia Minor in any significant way here. He really has slander and, and, and social marginalization in mind. And we should really listen to Peter. We should really listen to him. Why? Because Peter dealt with this same suspicion for decades, for decades as he led the Jerusalem church. The authorities in the Jerusalem church, or, or, or the authorities in Jerusalem, looked at this new budding segment of Judaism, and they were very suspicious. Very suspicious of this new way that was coming out of their ranks. They were so suspicious, they killed Jesus. They were so suspicious that, that they took Jesus' followers, they imprisoned them, and then they killed them too. And, and, so, and so Peter is leading a church in this environment of high suspicion. And so he has a lot of wisdom. He's probably writing after decades of leading the Jerusalem church through these tensions day in and day out. And he's writing to these Christians in Asia Minor that are starting to experience this suspicion of them by the greater culture. In fact, probably at the time, Peter is probably the, the, the best, most wise, experienced person on the face of the earth to write to Christian social marginalization. And from his deep well of wisdom on the subject, he's going to tell us about a mindset that, that, that we should adopt or a, a posture that we should have in the face of this suspicion. He, he's not just going to show us a technique now, but a posture. A posture is something that you carry with you everywhere you go, okay? It's, it's how you carry yourself no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. You have a posture about you. It's, it's with you everywhere. And Peter's going to speak to what our posture should be. And, and this is what I find completely fascinating about the posture Peter's going to teach us about today. If Christians actually lived with this, this posture, we would disarm much of the suspicion that is, and, and skepticism that surrounds us. In fact, if you're here today because a friend told you about this church, you're kind of on the, friend, on the fence about Christianity, you're, you're skeptical and you're suspicious, you probably have good reasons that you're skeptical and suspicious, but if you're skeptical today, though, I would bet that you maybe never have had a Christian do for you 
what Peter's calling Christians to act like and the posture for them to adopt here. Even if, if you're not a Christian and you have no interest in being a Christian at all, I bet you would love to live in a world that treats people like Peter tells Christians to treat people here. You know, you know Gandhi is famous for saying, I, I love your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. If, if more people adopted the posture Peter's talking about today, um, I think the opposite might be true. People might say, man, I really like your Christians. I'm not so sure about Jesus. I'm not so sure Jesus is exactly who he said he was be, but Christians, gosh, I love them. That's how revolutionary this posture is. So what is this posture? Let's get to it, okay? It's right at the beginning of, of the passage here. It's in verses 8 and 9. So if you're in First Peter, go to the big number 3. That's chapter 3. And then the, the little 8, that's verse 8. That's how, that's how we split it up so that we can find where we want to be quickly, okay? So 3 verse 8. Finally, all of you, Peter writes, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain blessing. So Peter says, don't repay evil for evil. And this is rare. This is a very crazy notion in Peter's age and in our age. So just do a thought experiment here. When was the last time you wronged somebody? When was the last time you wronged somebody? How did they respond to you? Did, did, how did they try to pay you back? Did they yell at you? Did they not talk to you? Did they ignore you? Did they pass aggressively spread gossip about you? When was the last time you were wronged? Did you respond in one of these ways? Of course you did. It's, it's only natural. It's only human. It seems, that, it seems that this tit for tat seems to be part of who we are now. But Peter says the Christian posture arising from these inward character traits is to absorb wrongdoing. You see, these inner character traits aren't really the, the posture themselves. Uh, the unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, a humble mind. These, these are inward things that display themselves outwardly and not returning evil for evil, but not only that, blessing. Peter says, don't return evil for evil, instead, bless. Don't just absorb wrongdoing without retaliating, take a step towards them and bless them. Now that is even crazier. That's even rarer. That never happens. When was the last time you saw that happen? You'd be hard-pressed to remember a time when you said, I saw someone bless someone else that had done wrongdoing to them. It is a rare, rare attitude. <clears throat> but Peter, the sage at dealing with social, social marginalization, says that this crazy and rare posture, this is the one Christians are to adopt, to absorb wrongdoing and then bless. And now that might seem like an impossible task to you, and that's okay. Peter knows it. Peter knows it. And so what he's going to do in this next passage, in this passage is he's going to unpack the obstacle that gets in the way of this posture. Okay, so he's going to help us remove that obstacle that's in the way of us loving enemies. This is a passage primarily about loving enemies. He's going to help us get the, the obstacle out of the way. And then he's going to show us the great opportunity that's present when we do love enemies that hopefully can inspire us to move past this obstacle and lean into it in significant ways. All right? 
Cool. So, so that's what we're, we're going to do today. We're going to look at the obstacle and the opportunity. I guess they both start with O, so it's really easy to remember. That, that's cool. All right. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So the obstacle and the opportunity. Let's start with the obstacle. All right, so after presenting this posture in verses 8 and 9, Peter could have quoted a, a lot of things to support his point. When Jesus was on earth, he went around saying things like this all the time. We have a handful of them preserved for us in the gospel accounts, but instead Peter goes to Psalm 34. He goes to Psalm 34 for why we should adopt this posture. Why adopt this posture? Well, pick it up in verse 9 with me, or 10, sorry, 10. Why should we adopt it? For or because? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what is Peter saying with this quote? He's saying the face of the Lord is against people who do evil, regardless of, of who they are or if it's in retribution or not. This face against language is Old Testament language of judgment. God's face is against people as a form of God lashing out in judgment on them. And Peter's saying, God is against this. He hates evil. He hates it. He's opposed all who repay evil for evil, even Christians. Peter's writing to Christians here. Even Christians. But he opens his ears to the prayers and he opens his arms to bless Christians who turn away from evil and do good, who respond to insults and slander with good, with kindness, by trying to work peace, turn away from evil. In, in the context of Psalm 34, David has experienced evil happening to him and, and, and he's saying we should turn away from evil and do good in response. Work peace. <clears throat> Peter continues, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you, he says, if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And there's the obstacle. It's fear. Fear. Fear is the biggest obstacle to loving enemies. It, it, but it's also the natural response of anybody who's been socially marginalized to be scared. But it's also the biggest roadblock. It's also the biggest roadblock to loving enemies, to the posture of loving enemies. And, and here are three ways that fear primarily represents itself. Okay? The, the, to, to all of us. It happens to all of us. Okay? Uh, the first is fight back. Fight back. Um, upon experiencing a slight or wrongdoing because you're a Christian, you return your own jabs. You do wrongdoing in, re in return. You scream. You argue. This pertains to social media too, guys. Okay? You, passive aggress uh, you, you would passive aggressively spread counter gossip and use power that you have to gain the upper hand in the relationship or the social situation. That, that, that's fighting. Now, aggression and, and fear have been found to be linked in countless, countless ways and countless, countless studies. And that's probably because fear and aggression seem to originate from the same part of the brain, the amygdala. Now, we don't know a ton about the amygdala. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it all that correctly. But we know it's where the fight or flight response is triggered. And so as such, it contains this unique commingling of fear and aggression. And for the Christian, it's no different. It turns out we have brains. They're just like everybody else's. You know, it's no different for us. And fear presents as protecting oneself by fighting back. That's to return evil for evil. 
Um, the, the second way fear can manifest, manifest itself is perhaps more obvious. It's to withdraw. To withdraw. When you encounter insult or slander because you're a Christian, you draw back into your hole like a mouse. You shrink back. You shrink, now, now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're alone and isolated. You might even have, have shrunk back with, and you have a whole bunch of other mice in your community that you all are shrink back and hiding between the walls together. You've withdrawn together. At least we have each other in the midst of this evil done to us. There are tons of communities that do this, that, that, that withdraw into each other, put up their walls. They may not be returning evil for evil, but they're definitely not blessing in return. The third fearful response is to accommodate to the culture. Accommodation is a fearful response. Fearful that you might stand out and be different from the culture. You might accommodate what it means to be a Christian in order to fit in. It's, it's an attempt to blend in like a chameleon. What does this look like? Um, well, you, you take the parts of the Christian, Christian message, which are really hard for our culture to hear, and to stomach. Things like sin, placing us at odds with a holy God. Notions of hell, which Jesus spoke a lot about. These are the hard edges of the Christian faith to our culture, aren't they? And, and what you do to accommodate out of fear is you just take those and just sand those hard edges off. Just say, you know, that's really not part of the Christian message. I don't think we understood Jesus' words correctly. I don't think we can really trust the words that are written here in this book. I've listened to many, many Christian podcasts that do this. I've had many conversations with people that really want to accommodate their faith Sometimes it's done at this notion that they're trying to figure out what's really true in this world, and that's great. That's really what we should do. We should really try to find out what's right and what's true and what's good and what's beautiful in this world. But often I find in these conversations is that this accommodation is really a fearful response to a greater culture that has socially marginalized them. And this fearful response actually endangers the Christian because have you ever seen a chameleon at the zoo? When you go to the chameleon exhibit, you can still always pick them out. You can say, oh, there's the chameleon. You might have to look a little bit longer in order, but you can still always pick them out. Because here's the thing. His chameleonness is still there. And the, the accommodating fearful response isn't just a one and done thing. So you're you're going to want to blend more and more and more and more until accommodation becomes complete assimilation. You're not a Christian anymore. And poof, you've accomplished your goal. It's sad. You, but you'll, you'll, you'll no longer experience slights for being Christians. In fact, you might even be praised as one enlightened. But Peter tells us not to fear. And let's admit it, this is a really tall order. Um, in case you didn't know, um, fear is one of those base or primary emotions that we have um, that often drives our other emotions, like anger, sadness, and if you're anything like me, um, your emotions happen to you. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have that in common. Uh, your emotions kind of happen to you. You're not really in control of them. And so when someone looks at you and says, hey, don't fear, it's like, what are you talking about? This is scary. So let's just admit that here. And Peter knows that. Peter knows that this is kind of a, a strange command to command somebody's emotions. It's a really strange thing to do. And so Peter wants to help us. And so he continues like this in verse 15. He says, but, he says, so back up to 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now to Peter and to all the Jews, he's talking about the heart here, and and the heart is the seat of the self. He's saying your self is experiencing fear, and what you need to do is take yourself by the hand, and you need to talk to it. You, if you let yourself talk to you, it's going to tell you to fight. It's going to tell you to withdraw. It's going to tell you to accommodate. Your, yourself just wants to protect itself. And those are the resources that it has at its disposal in order to protect itself. It's going to convince you to do the, those things. But the Christian life is about talking to that self and not letting the self talk to you probably bring this notion into almost every sermon that we preach here at Sedaris. Everything that is about the Christian life, so many things of the ways that we want to grow involve us talking to ourselves and let, instead of letting ourselves talk to us. To, to look at ourselves and say, hey, you know what? We're going to trust God here. I'm not going to trust you here. Most areas of growth and discipleship really involve wrangling the self telling it not to worry, not to fear. We're going we're, we're, we're to trust something else here. What is that thing that Peter's talking about? Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, now, the ESV really does a bad job at translating this word honor here. If you've been tracking with us, Peter has been really focused on letting the Christians know, all Christians know that they are to honor. They're going to honor um, everybody above them in whatever station of life they find themselves in. So he says, uh, everybody honor the emperor. You guys in your individual jurisdictions, honor your governors. Um, He's going to say slaves or servants, honor your masters. Wives, honor your husbands. Husbands, honor your wives. And this word honor that he's been using throughout all of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 actually isn't present here. It's a different word. The word that's used here is he's saying sanctify or set apart as holy. Literally, the, the word is to sanctify or to holy eyes, to set aside as holy. It, it's the word that Jesus told his disciples when he was teaching them the Lord's Prayer. He says, our Father who, aren't, who, who, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be holy. May it be set aside as something special. May it be treasured. May it be valued. And so, in a certain sense, to, to hallow God's name is to honor God. But, but here, Peter is using a different word to say that God should be the one at the top of the list. He should be honored and, and, and set aside as something special and treasured and precious above anything else, any other person that you may come into contact with in this world. The CSB translation and the NIV translation, they, they, they get it right. Instead of honor, they supplant the word regard. So as not to confuse Peter's flow of thought here. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Regard him as holy, set aside, treasured, more precious than anyone else. Well, what does that mean? Well, Peter is saying that when ourselves experience fear and want to fight, run, accommodate, we have to remind ourselves that there's someone else to fear. And that is God. And, and you really can't see the fear God element unless you see where Peter's quoting from. And Peter's actually quoting this from Isaiah chapter 8. So we're going to throw Isaiah chapter 8 up here on the screen here. This is uh, Isaiah, the beginning of his ministry actually. For this is what the Lord said to me with great power, to keep me from going the way of this people. Do not call everything a conspiracy these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. That's a, a straight translation. Of, of what's in verse 14 here. 
you are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Regard the Lord as holy. It's kind of cool. Peter is actually equating Jesus to the Old Testament notion of Yahweh here. This is a, Peter definitely thought Jesus was God. That's what this kind of tells us. It's kind of a cool theological thing for any of you Bible nerds out there. Okay, you are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary. <clears throat> so God calls us to return good for evil. His face is against those who do evil. And so to fear God means to accommodate to his word and to blend, blend into it, not into our society. Adopt a posture of loving our enemies. This is still in the context of Psalm 34, where David is saying, love enemies. Still in the context of Psalm 34. Love enemies. We're to fear God and his good word more than people's slanderous words, you could say. Jesus put it like this to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. He said, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. That's intense. This is an intense Jesus. And here's the thing, our culture hates the notion of fearing God. But fearing God actually brings the safety that we want in the midst of an uncertain world. Can you throw it back up, Lena? You see verse 14 here? He will be a sanctuary. Peter um, in verse 14 says, you will be blessed. He will be a sanctuary. Sanctuary is a place of refuge, a place of safety, a shelter, a harbor, a safe haven. When we fear God instead of man, we actually find the safety that we long for. He protects us. Our, our self looks to get that protection by fighting, withdrawing, or accommodating. But you know what? Your self actually can't protect you. These other fearful responses, they don't actually work. If you fight, you're always going to have to be looking out for the next fight that's coming. If you withdraw, if and when your enemy presses in again, you're going to have to retreat further. And like we talked about already, accommodation is never done until you're fully assimilated. But Peter says that in fearing God, you can truly find safety, sanctuary, a safe haven, refuge, once and for all. Will you suffer at the hands of natural people? Perhaps, but a supernatural security will be present for you to nourish you and protect you. Who you fear most is who you listen to, is what Peter's saying. Who you fear most is who you will listen to. And Peter is calling Christians to obey God over people. The obstacle to a posture of loving enemies is fearing them. It's not necessarily hating them. It's fearing them. It's, it's also hating them. But let's say you're, you're trying to be a good Christian and you're like, you know, I'm not going to hate my enemies. That's great. The next for, obstacle for you is don't fear them either. Fear God instead. Now, now that brings us to the next point, the opportunity this posture presents us with, okay? Um, now, if you experience this social uh, marginalization in, in any way, whether it be slander, gossip, insult, um, if you experience it, feel the fear, deny yourself, 
its preferred fearful responses and remind yourself to fear God, then you can adopt this posture of blessing in response to evil. It's so rare, it's so strange, it's so crazy. And at the same time, it's extraordinarily attractive. It's extraordinarily attractive. Why? Because it demonstrates that you have found a sanctuary that actually works. Our culture is enslaved by fight, withdraw, accommodate. When they see someone who's broken free of this, it means they're operating out of a truer sanctuary, a truer safety. Responding to evil with good is a public declaration of a safety discovered like none other. And people are going to look over and notice. This is how the gospel becomes incredible in a culture where it's uncredible. Loving enemies. And then this is what's going to happen. They're going to ask you, why are you doing this? What's going on? What is fueling you so that you don't respond to wrongdoing with fear, but instead with love? It alludes to a sanctuary of hope that's otherworldly and powerful. Peter says that people will ask you about it when they see it. It's in the second part of verse 15. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's the opportunity here. Peter's taken so long to get here. And at the end of this chain is someone asking you for the reason for the hope within you. I think all of us really want to share our faith with the world. And this is the process, Peter says, that will enable you to do that uh, oftentimes. He's reminded us of our hopes at the beginning of 1 Peter 1. He's reminded us to honor authorities in every station of life. Now he's presented us with the fact that people will do evil to us anyway sometimes and we're to do good in return. And then finally, after all the hard work of loving our enemies, people are going to invite us to open our mouths and share the hope of the gospel with them. That's the very opportunity that we're talking about here that Peter wants to share, share with us. That's why we love enemies. That's why we push through the fear and learn to fear God. We can't just helicopter into this letter and pull out the second half of verse 15 and say, I better be ready to talk to to people about Jesus. This is a paragraph about loving enemies. If you aren't loving your enemies, Peter might say, why prepare at all? Responding to a culture of Christian suspicion, Peter's saying something much more sophisticated than always be ready to make offense. Although, we definitely should always be ready to make a defense. Peter has envisioned an entire social dynamic that's at play here, where the fear of the Lord has gripped the, the people of God and is outpacing their fear of man. I, I use that word outpacing very intentionally. I don't know if we ever get completely over being fearful of the ways other people can harm us, but at least our fear of the Lord has outpaced us so that we can love our enemies. And it's invited a beautiful, opportunistic conversation with someone who does not know God. Maybe the enemies, maybe someone just looking in from the side. I would say usually someone just looking in from the side. And so we must radically love enemies and we must be ready when that inspires onlookers to ask why. Peter says, always be prepared to give a defense. Um, 
That word defense comes from the word apologias, which is where we get our word apologetics, which if you've been a Christian for a while, it's the Christian discipline of, of pulling together arguments for the Christian faith. It's where we get our word for apology, but it doesn't mean to apologize to someone. Uh, It's more in the terms of that, to form an argument, but not like negative, go and argue with people. It means like a a reasoned argument. Um, So you can put it like this. Uh, If your spouse uh, gets home late from work, um, and they, they, they can look at you and they can give you an apology. I'm really sorry I was late. And an apologetic would be more like if your spouse gets home late from work, um, and, and they say, you know what, I, I'm late today because I took the bus and they still are working on Dexter. Still. Anybody else have to take a bus through there? They're still working on it. And, and, and so it took forever for my bus to get through there and get on Aurora to be home. That's why I'm late. Now that's an apologetic for the lateness. It's not an apology, right? It's, it, it's, a, it's a reasoned argument as to why things are the way they are. And Peter says that that be ready to give a reason or the argument for the hope that is within you, that is informing this love of enemies. We all must have a 30-second elevator pitch as to why we are Christian. That's the simplest way I could put it. I was like, how can I make this the most simple? A 30-second elevator pitch as to why you are a Christian that you could say in an elevator with somebody. 30 seconds, concise, simple, I can start the conversation and bring it somewhere. Maybe you can follow it up with a, you asked me about this, this is why, you should come to Alpha with me. And Nikki Gumbel can even continue the conversation for you and with you. See, we've done all, we, we, we've worked so hard to love enemies, to work past the fear, and in light of being gossiped about or slandered, to return and, and do nice things for people. That's really hard. That's like 99% of the work. Peter's saying, don't squander it. Don't waste it. You have 1% left, and that's just an explanation for the reason for the hope within you. So how can you begin to formulate that? Well, first we have to understand what the hope is, and to see what that hope is, um, you actually have to read this passage as a Texan, okay? A Texan. And uh, why do I say that? Um, Texans have a one-up at interpreting this passage uh, over everybody else in the English language, actually. Um, and that's because they have preserved the second plural, the second person plural in English, okay, where the rest of us have lost it, okay? How do you ask? With, with, with one word, y'all, with y'all. Anywhere you see a you in this passage, it's actually a, a y'all. It's actually a y'all. Peter isn't talking to individuals, he's talking to communities. And so in verse 15, it really reads, but in y'all's hearts, y'all regard Christ the Lord as holy, Y'all always being prepared to make a defense to anyone asks y'all for a reason for the hope that's within y'all. So this hope Peter's referring to is not an individual hope that, that you have and you have, but it's the hope that's in all of us. It's the hope for the Christian faith. And this is what we have to remember about hope. Hope is future-oriented. It's trust in a future reality that washes back gives us energy today. Um, Hope is the difference between working on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, end of hump day, working on a Wednesday afternoon, and working on a Wednesday afternoon when your week-long vacation starts tomorrow. Those are two very different experiences, aren't they? 
Then the second, you have far more energy. Why? Because you have hope in a reality that's happening tomorrow. And it washes back and gives you energy that day. So the Christian hope is grounded in the future. Here's what it is. One day, Jesus will establish a kingdom on earth of perfect justice. It's going to be a physical world, not some ethereal place in the sky. No, it'll be a renewed world. If you want to get a first taste of what it looks like, think about the resurrection of Jesus. Peter talked about that at the beginning of this letter. Jesus had a physical and resurrected body. He ate meals with his disciples after he was raised from the dead. They touched his body. They grasped onto him so much so he was like, give me some space, bro. It's actually preserved in the Gospels. Jesus was raised from the dead to a new kind of life and a new kind of body that will never die again. So it was physical, but it was perfected physicality. It was a new kind of body. It was everlasting. And one day, God is going to do for the whole creation what he did for Jesus' body. He's going to do it for the earth we live on, the bodies that we have, and what he did for the dead body of Jesus. He's going to give it a perfected new life that will last forever. That's our future hope. Now, if that is your future, it means that you don't have to get all of your longings met now. You don't need everything in life to work just like you want it to, just like you need it to. You might even be able to experience some slander and shrug it off as a temporary inconvenience and love and response, right? The Christian hope says you don't have to get all of your needs and desires met just in this life. That's what most people are focused on, actually. They only have one shot to get their, meet, their needs and their desires met. They, and that shot is a 75-year window that's closing. That's the reality of everybody who does not have this hope. But you're going to get a new body You're going to have an everlasting life in a new perfect world without decay, without death, without dying. But to the person who doesn't have that hope, this is all they have. This is all they have. This world is all they have, but the Christian has so much more. And a future hope gives us the energy to push through today, even when today is full of unrealized wants, unrealized needs, unrealized desires perhaps even full of misgivings by people who don't understand us. That's the hope. And then there's also an individualized nature to it, okay? Why do you trust it? Why do you trust that hope? What about that hope gets you going? What about that hope is actually what brought you in the, hope to, in the door today? Can you put words to it? That's what your elevator speech needs to be. People are going to ask you about the Christian faith, And you say, I hope in this because of this. This is the reason for my hope that I have. Just the last 1% of work to do after 99% of a lot of work to love enemies. Now, many of us would be encouraged by the opportunity to be asked to share our hope. But you you might say, you know what, I'm not really experiencing much uh, much by way of pushback, Ryan, um, or that Peter's talking about here. If, if that's you, that's okay, and here are some things to consider, okay? Um, the first goes like this. Persecution isn't prescribed, okay? We, we must acknowledge that nowhere in the Bible does it say that if you're a Christian, you will be persecuted all the time, okay? In, in fact, Peter thinks that this might not be a common scenario for these Christians. He said it in verse 16. He says, now, or verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. If you're not experiencing pushback because of your faith, 
It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have a genuine love for Jesus or his gospel. Sometimes you will hear Christian, fi- uh, Christian figures in- insinuate such, but for Peter, there's a possibility in his mind that Christians in Asia Minor might not be suffering these things. <clears throat> and so I-, I would say that suffering seems to be more likely in a post-Christian society uh, than a pre-Christian society, but we may not always be suffering in this life, okay? Um, the second thing is, are you letting yourself be vulnerable in engaging our city? That's the second thing. Are you letting yourself be vulnerable in your engagement of our city? Are you engaging with society on such a level that people can hurt you if they want to? That means you're not withdrawn. Are, are, are you engaging from a position of humility? That means you're a fighter. Sometimes our fearful responses of fighting and withdrawal, they keep us from vulnerable engagement to begin with. It means we're not on mission. It means we're sidelined, usually. Third, is your life marked by refusing popular, culturally acceptable sin? Or have you accommodated your faith in these ways? Do you refuse drunkenness, marijuana? Have you chosen to save sexual expression until marriage? Peter's going to unpack those actually at the beginning of chapter 4 and how those personal moral choices that Christians tend to take lead to their marginalization as well. We'll get to that in a week or two. And, and, and finally, if you are praying for opportunities to share the gospel, which I, I hope you are, ask that God would open your eyes to the social marginalization around you so that you can know who you should begin to bless in order to have those conversations. Loving enemies is often a door into having those conversations. So ask God to open your eyes to that going on around you. Then Peter makes clear how to share this hope in the following verses in uh, 16 and 17. Well, really at the end of 15. So we'll start at 15 again. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So we have this respect and gentleness. Uh, This word for gentleness is meekness. And this is a really, really important point that Peter's making here. Meek isn't a word that we use anymore, but a, a, a meek person in Peter's mind is someone who's unwilling to establish their own justice. They're unwilling to establish their own justice. They are unwilling to defend themselves. They're unwilling to to attack an unjust opponent. Instead, they commit themselves to God, knowing that God will ultimately defend them. So in our conversations, Peter says, don't spend time focusing on the injustice that you've experienced. There should not be a hint of anything in our response that, that puts down or that criticizes the enemy. But we just focus on positively sharing the reasons for our hope in the gospel. There's, there's a pivot that takes place here. What do we see Jesus doing on the cross? Do we see him saying, I can't believe these authorities convicted me wrongly. I can't believe they put me up here. I'm innocent. Oh, the nerve. No, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's the meekness of Christ on the cross. 
This meekness actually is not just a New Testament thing that, that Peter's calling Christians to do. It actually has a rich history throughout the entire Old Testament. David, King David, is actually the figure that is probably the meekest figure that we have preserved for us in the Old Testament. And in that way, he models and images Christ in some really cool ways. Um, one time, uh, his son Absalom tries to take over the kingdom. And so uh, David's forced to flee Jerusalem or else he's killed. So he's fleeing Jerusalem with his, with his royal guard. He's, he's town hopping from town to town uh, while his son Absalom is pursuing him. And uh, at one point between towns, this guy uh, is like, oh, cool, there's the king. I have special access to this king. And you know what? I don't like this king. So he walks up alongside King David and he starts hurling curses at him. This is in uh, 2 Samuel 16. The guy's name is, Sh- is Shammai. He starts hurling all these curses at King David. And king David just politely ignores him, keeps on walking. And one of his royal guard looks at him and says, David, who is this dead dog that he should curse the king? Let me go over there and cut off his head. David says, No. Let him curse. Perhaps the Lord will look upon my plight today and restore the blessing of the kingdom back to me. Incredible, incredible meekness. I am not going to execute my, my own justice. He's also just caught in this really awkward situation before he came king that, that for some reason God told Samuel to crown him king while there was already a king on the throne, Saul. So Saul is like running all over, chasing David down to try to kill him. David never hurts him back, even though there's a couple opportunities to kill him. Never hurts him back. And then he writes this beautiful psalm. I wish that we had time to go into it this morning. Psalm 59. Unpack it in your cohorts. And it is this exact thing that Peter's talking about here. He says, my enemies are trying to do evil to me, but instead I'm blessing them. And by the end of the psalm, what we see David doing in his meekness is proclaiming his hope in God in front of the assemblies of all of Israel. It's a really cool psalm that just mimics this passage. All right, so that's the opportunity this posture gives. The, the posture of returning good for evil gives the opportunity to have conversations about our hope in God with people who don't know him and then invite him to Alpha. And Peter says, be ready for that conversation. Well, how do we know that it works? Well, Peter says that it works because of Jesus, actually. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Taking suffering and turning it to blessing so as to bring people to know God is the very posture and the purpose and the strategy of Jesus. Peter brings up Jesus' suffering over and over in this letter. Now he's using it as the central component of an evangelistic witness to the world. And this should be a little bit surprising to us with what we know about Peter. Because in Mark chapter 8, we have an unflattering story about Peter. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm about to suffer many things. And Peter takes Jesus aside and says he begins to rebuke him. And then Jesus looks at Peter and he yells at him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is probably dumbfounded and confused in the moment. But eventually he gets it. Eventually, Peter came to realize from the firsthand experience of Christ's death, death and, and resurrection, along with leading a church in Jerusalem for decades, that suffering and returning good for evil is the greatest opportunity to bring people to God, to share the hope of the gospel in the world that it might multiply. It's one of the primary ways the church has always grown for 2,000 years, where you, wherever you see the church persecuted, you see 
the church multiplying. It's this curious thing. It's because of this dynamic at play that Peter's talking about here. You see, Jesus was righteous, he, yet he suffered the evils of the unrighteous, and he absorbed their wrongdoing and your wrongdoing into his body. And you noticed him suffering injustice with a posture of blessing. And you were curious at some point, And you found a reason to hope in God as a result. What is it? Write it down. Memorize it. Practice it. Get it ready to go. God hopes to mold us into Christ, to give us his mind and his heart. That's in verse 8, right? So that we would learn to fear him instead of the world and lean into suffering as an opportunity to bless. Why? So that we can share the reasons for the hope. To point to how Jesus did the very same thing to us and for them. Because he wants to bring them to God. That's how God wants to use you. Let's pray. Father, we... um. We just come before you uh, just amazed that you would absorb our wrongdoing into your body in order to bless us and bring us life and joy. God, right now, I just pray that you would give us a fresh experience of the gospel right now. A fresh experience through your spirit. Send a fresh experience and a revelation of, of Jesus Christ on the cross suffering for us that we might live everlasting. Everlasting lives of joy and abundance. Right now, I pray for my friends who are here today that might not be Christians. I, I pray that you would, uh, that you would uh, show them your son and, and, and how he has suffered for them, that they might ask for more, more context or the hope that must have been fueling Jesus on the cross to be with them once again. So we, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. We pray that you would inspire us to love enemies and share our, our reasons for the hope in the gospel. Amen.